This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Health Matters. I'm Dr. David Granite. Today, we're going to talk about a disease that's really going to be interesting for many reasons. One is, the name sounds like it could be a motorcycle, called Kawasaki disease. And we're going to find out why it's got that name, what it is that's so important about it, why you should care, and why medical science and research is so important in understanding how we get to answers when it comes to medical problems. With us, we have the world's expert, Dr. Jane Burns. Welcome. Thank you. Dr. Burns is a professor in pediatrics, runs her own laboratories, the, the director of the Kawasaki Disease Laboratory here at UC San Diego in the Rady Children's Hospital. And I've known for many years because we've worked together in our real lives about all of this. I, I mentioned the name of this. I, I think that we were stuck having to explain how it got named. Right. So Dr. Kawasaki is a fabulous pediatrician in the suburbs of Tokyo, who was seeing patients that he didn't understand in the 1960s. He wasn't the right person as far as the Japanese hierarchy thought to discover a new disease. And he had an uphill battle. If you can imagine, he had to collect 50 patients before he tried to publish a paper about this new disease. And, and we do think it's a new disease since after World War II. So to collect 50 patients, depending upon what the disease is, doesn't sound like much if it's supposed to be, you know, I don't know, toenail fungus. But for this, the incidence of this disease in the U.S. is 10 to 20 per 100,000. And in Japan, 200 per 100,000 something? The curve in Japan looks something like this, okay? Increasing. And increasing. And they're up to 350 cases per 100,000 children less than five years. Wow. At this point in time, and it continues to rise. So how long would it take to find 50 back in the day to even identify that this was something different? He saw his first patient in 1961, and he published his paper in 1967. Wow. He was a patient man. <laughs> Very. So people think medicine moves slowly, but when you have an instance of a disease that's relatively low, uh, to be a detective and identify that this stands out, this isn't easy. What it takes is collaboration. And really, in this age now, the name of the game is collaborating with other investigators. It's so important, and particularly for genetic studies, where we need thousands of samples and thousands of patients. Collaboration is important. And... There's so many things that are slightly off about this disease, right? I mean, we're talking about something. We talked about its name. We talked about how many people get it. Um, uh, there are more uh, men than there are women, boys than girls that get it. And it's more in kids under the age of five. So it's more under the age of five. So 85% of our patients will be under five. But the kids who get missed are the teenagers, and I just saw a um, Marine from Camp Pendleton. So it can happen in young adults. It's extremely rare. So we think of this as a toddler disease. And the thing that's really unique about it is that it is now the most common cause of acquired heart disease in pediatrics. Wow. It is absolutely treatable. There is no diagnostic test. See, and that's the part that is so strange about all this. First, we have to say, okay, 
what would make a parent ever think I should be calling my doctor? And then what makes the doctor think, could this be Kawasaki's? So let me tell you a secret, and that is that if we could bottle parental intuition, we're there, home free. We would have the diagnosis. When the mother takes the kid into the pediatrician and there's rash and fever and red eyes and the pediatrician looks at the child and says, you know, I think it's just a virus, that mother does not accept that. And we did a study with one of our residents where if you've been to see the pediatrician or a healthcare provider at least three times for the same febrile illness, the chance that that's Kawasaki disease is huge. And if we came back three times, that means the first one, two, maybe even the third time they weren't thinking of Kawasaki's disease. They weren't thinking of Kawasaki disease, but the parent knew knew in their heart of hearts, that parent heart, this is not okay. I'm an experienced mom, I know virus, you know, this, this is something else. So there is something about the severity, about how sick the children are, that the parent gets. So there's a good double message here, and, and I have to share with you the story of my first rotation in pediatrics as a medical student. I was at Yale. The professor comes on and says, David, I'm going to tell you the most important thing you're ever going to hear. I run and get a piece of paper, and I'm like, I'm ready. And he says, always listen to the mom. Right. That, was, that was the first thing I ever right. was taught. Right. So, so for parents, if it doesn't feel right, you, you have to stick to your guns a little bit, which can be awkward with a pediatrician. But with doctors also, we need to be reminded that if a, a parent is feeling like this isn't right, then you have to listen. And that's the value of continuity, of knowing the parents and saying this is not someone who gets nervous over the littlest things, and to listen. So those, that relationship of the family with the doctor becomes extremely important. The parents are incredible advocates for their children, and it's really impressive how hard they try to get the right diagnosis. And I have to say that as the pediatrician who gets to walk in the room and look at the child and put together the history and then absolutely know that this is Kawasaki disease, the level of stress in the room just goes Because now they know. Because naming it just solves everything. All the anxiety melts away. It's you're here where you need to be. We know how to treat this. And you're not crazy. (laughs) And you're not crazy. And supporting them and saying you were a great advocate for your child and good for you for coming back again and again. Well, it's it's almost a uh, prescription for how to be a great doctor. So, I mean, that's impressive to hear. Let's, Let's do the doctor thing. What are the signs and symptoms that makes you think that this the child may have Kawasaki's? So I can describe all the things that I see that I put together as the puzzle. But the amazing thing about this disease is that every parent, given the right information, can make the diagnosis. This is a visual disease. It's all right there on the surface. You can see it, okay? So it starts very suddenly with high fever. There's no prodrome which we're using for our research to what is this, you know, what, what's so going they're, on they're, they're not feeling poorly. They're mm-hmm. not running a 99, 100, and then slowly get, it's like suddenly wham, they have 100 and right. three, four, five. High fevers, high fevers, and there's a lot of between children variability, but it's a high fever, and it comes on suddenly. And then over the next several days, the signs begin to appear. So the eyes turn bloodshot. The lips turn red. They may crack and and bleed. 
and peel. The whole mouth and inside of the mouth, the tongue is bright red. The hands and feet become swollen and bright red, and a rash usually appears over the body. But the thing on the hands and feet is different. It's really like you just dip them in hot water. So, so it, they're bright it's red. scalded it's, and the skin peels? Yes, demarcated. No, there's no peeling. That's a late, late sign, and we certainly want to make the diagnosis before that happens. So the acute phase over a course of days, and look at our healthcare system, where we have a different provider every day, right? right? So there's no continuity. The parent is the only source. So your point about the history, take the history. Because these signs come and go, right. right? But the parent holds the key to all the information. Well, and as a pediatric ophthalmologist, the, the times occasionally we get called, it's, you know, it's almost an urgent moment because if you wait too long, the signs that we can help add are gone. Right. Uh, some of the information inside the eye that we can find with special microscopes, you know, by day 10, it, it's not there anymore. Right. And I think you were one of the first people to report that, as I recall. <laughs> but, I mean, so, so having a doctor recognize this early means the diagnosis can be made early and confirmed at least as best as we can clinically. And if you begin to think that all these outward signs of inflammation, so the body's immune response that's going crazy, these signs on the outside are not dangerous in and of themselves, but they're the hallmark of what's going on inside the blood vessels. And in the wall of the coronary arteries, which is where the inflammation settles, there's the process of beginning to destroy them. And so this is an insidious disease that doesn't look necessarily that alarming from the outside, but is very alarming on the so inside. So the common thing that why the hands and the feet and the eyes, everything and the mouth is having that all happen, changes in the blood vessels. Well, it's the body's response to a trigger that we don't yet know what it is, but it's the immune system basically going crazy. So the two arms of the immune system, the innate immune system, we like to think of that as the first responders, right? And those guys, man, the ambulance is on full charge, right? <laughs> they come on. The sirens are on. And the, that arm of the immune system is just upregulated and going nuts. And it's driving the fever, it's driving uh, the inflammation all throughout the body, but it settles into the coronary arteries, and that's where the permanent damage can happen. And it becomes dangerous. Right. So, you know, there's always a test in medicine. What's the test for this? Ha <laughs> ha. Yeah. <laughs> I ask with tongue in cheek. The, no the Rosetta Stone that yeah. we're looking for, right? So, uh, the problem is that we have to sort out the needle from the haystack. Every pediatrician, every emergency room is going to see hundreds of kids with rashes and fever, right? They're sick. They don't have Kawasaki disease. And the problem is that they all have a little bit of inflammation. They just don't have quite as much inflammation as our Kawasaki disease patients. And the blood tests that are available are all about inflammation. And the overlap, if you think, okay, here's the range in our Kawasaki patients, the other febrile control children, you know, are like this. There's an overlap, and there's nothing that's diagnostic in and of itself. So what do you do? How, how do you make decisions in that setting? It's actually not that difficult because you've got the history of how the whole process evolved. You've got your physical exam, and 
just the examination of the eye, if you're really careful and you really get a good history, I think you can make the diagnosis of Kawasaki disease really based on, on the story about the eye in conjunction with fever and rash and the other signs. But the thing about the eye is you have to ask the parent, did both eyes turn red at the same time? And we beat on our residents to not call this bloodshot eye thing conjunctivitis, right? Because itis, that suffix, meaning inflammation of, and we have all kind of itis going on in the body. There's vasculitis, right? Inflammation of the blood vessels. But there ain't conjunctivitis. There's, you know, we biopsied the conjunctiva. There's no inflammation there at all. And so the thing about both eyes turning red at the same time is those vessels are responding to circulating proteins, cytokines, these pro-inflammatory molecules that are making the blood vessels dilate. And that's all that's going on. So, I mean, you've seen lots of patients over the years. You see 100 patients a year, and you're following some 1,500 families now. Not everybody has that experience and, and has that level of comfort. Is it important to have someone around who has that experience wherever you are in the United States or get to someone who can identify this? Or if you're somewhere where they may not have Jane Burns, what do you do? Dr. Google. (laughs) Okay. Okay? Yeah. So the parent can go online and do rash, fever, red eyes, and boom, Kawasaki disease comes up. Dr. Google makes the diagnosis. And if the parent can go in armed with that possibility and say to the healthcare provider, gee, I went online, could this be Kawasaki disease? Light bulb. And there's no pediatrician that's been trained since 1967 or so that doesn't know about Kawasaki disease. Right. Everybody's heard of it. There are variations across the country because there's an important genetic background to this disease. So it's overrepresented in children of Asian descent and children of African-American descent. So those are the two highest risk populations. And so people who practice in communities where there's a large number of those two groups of children are going to see Kawasaki disease more often. I want to talk about the treatment briefly because mm-hmm. I want to get into then the research on trying to figure this out uh, mm-hmm. and, and how detective that becomes and how interesting that is. So right. you identify somebody as Kawasaki disease. What do you do? We reach to the pharmacy for the single most expensive product that we have in our pharmacy, okay? Okay. It's intravenous immunoglobulin. So this is the protein fraction of human blood. So this is a natural treatment. It's not a drug. It's not something synthetic. It's purified from blood in a way that there can be no transmission of viruses, so totally safe. However, the expense is astronomical. So to treat... A 10 kilo patient, somebody about this size, will cost about $15,000 to $18,000 for one treatment. It's very effective. They usually only need one treatment. But the consequence of this expense, that it's a blood product, that it, it requires sophisticated manufacturing, is that most of the children in the world who have this disease will never be treated. And not treated, one in four will develop permanent, potentially fatal heart disease. It's crushing. You know, as people who take care of kids, that's, those are crushing words to hear. The good news, though, is in the United States, we can start there, that this treatment is available. Absolutely available. Even though it's expensive. Uh, in Western Europe, 
it would be available. Equally. Right. But there are parts of the world where clearly it's not. So the Philippines, as an example, where I've done a lot of work, uh, it's, it's just not going to happen. So one of the missions of our laboratory is not to be complacent. It's not good enough that our children can be treated. We want all the world's Everybody. children to be treated. And so people got very complacent when they realized that, gamma, that IVIG, the intravenous immunoglobulin, that it works really well. They stopped trying to figure out why it works really well. You didn't. And that's what our <laughs> laboratory is doing. So. Right. And, and there's some cool, interesting things like the seasonality of the disease and other stuff. So along the way, you've crossed off some things and said, oh, it's not that. It doesn't look like it's that. And you're working on trying to figure it out. Walk us through that. So my background is in pediatric infectious disease. And I thought 30 years ago when I began working on this disease piece of cake. I'm trained in PEDS ID. I'm reasonably smart. New disease. Reasonably. Very smart. We'll start. <laughs> new disease. I can do this, right? We, we can figure this out. And so every time a new virus or new bacteria was discovered, we would run to our freezers and test the serum samples that we had and try to figure it out. And after a while, we started to get the message, okay? This isn't likely to be a microbe that we haven't discovered yet. And there are a million different pieces of evidence that led us to that conclusion, but that's where we are now. And what we're looking for is we're looking for a something that children breathe in. And again, all of the action is initially in the upper respiratory tract, the oropharynx. So these lymph nodes here that drain the posterior pharynx, the back of the throat, those become enlarged and inflamed. Um, all of the immune response is happening up here. Okay, we got that. It's coming in through here, okay? So it's something these kids are breathing in. And then, being the boots on the ground person, I knew that my march was hideous. And September, October was the time I wanted to take my vacation because we had almost no okay. patients. See, to me, this is a, you just made the pitch for the clinician scientist, right? I mean, bench to, to bedside, all of that. It's so important to be in both places. It is the only way that you will ask certain questions. The PhD scientists are so valuable in biomedical research for their kind of very focused, targeted, asking those questions. But it's only our breed of physician scientists that are going to get inspiration for the questions we ask from our patients, go into the laboratory, address those questions, and then very quickly be able to translate it back. We've had amazing turnaround times of a couple of years for a new treatment Incredible. for this disease. But it's only because we're this beast called the physician scientist. So <laughs> I, I can't say strongly enough how important it is for there to continue to be funding and support and just recognition that we're an important breed of biomedical scientists. You have new research that's going on right now. You have some new trials. You have some work that you're doing in adults and looking at genetics. Let's touch base on those real quick. So first of all, to say that I'm part of a very talented group of people, so none of this gets done by a single person. Right? You're representing them. <laughs> this is all teamwork, and I represent a, a wonderful group of people. So we've got um, Adriana Tremolay, who's the leader of our clinical trials. 
and we looked at whole blood gene expression. So we looked at what are the cells doing that are circulating in the blood, what, what's their activity, so they're making messenger RNA as something that we can look at, and it's a window into what are these cells thinking about and doing. And we saw immediately that they were all responding with a molecule that's part of that first responder pathway called IL-1, and they were making pounds of this. And so we said, okay, there happened to be, reach up into the shelf in the pharmacy, a bunch of ways that we can block that pathway. And boom, Audrey put it into clinical trials, and it looks like it's really successful as a way to help these patients, particularly ones who have early heart damage. And why that when you have a, a successful treatment already? Because the heart problem seems to smolder on. And so we wanted to add in, we wanted to intensify the therapy with IVIG. So IVIG, um, Alessandra Franco is the immunologist in our team who's working on how does it work, right? Important question, particularly since it costs tens of thousands of dollars yeah, and we need nice to replace to it, right. okay? So what she's discovered is that one of the major ways that it works is actually to boost the body's own anti-inflammatory system. So we have the, those first responders, the pro-inflammatory system, and then we have the anti-inflammatory system that makes the molecules that shuts everybody up, right? And it looks like one of the major functions of IVIG, which is actually mediated not by the whole molecule, which is expensive to purify, but actually by a little portion, the stem part of the IgG molecule, this portion, that you could synthesize for pennies. And it's that part that seems to be really active in down-regulating the immune system because it's boosting the cells that do that. I love it. I love it when smart people get on a topic. It's, it's just amazing to hear you talk about this. I can't imagine that what you're doing is cheap, the research. No, it's not. <laughs> the government's money is tied up and it's harder and harder to get grants. How do you get funded to come up with these incredible observations that make a difference for our children? Well, let me tell you about the current challenge, okay? Everybody talks about interdisciplinary research. Isn't that a total buzzword right yes. now? Like, let's get together with the engineers and the this and the that and work across. Okay, tell me who the funding agency is who can review, appreciate, understand, and wants to fund interdisciplinary research. There is none, because we're siloed research, for that. Right? <laughs> and so we are largely funded by philanthropy. We are funded by major donors who in one way or another have been affected by this disease and who have the financial possibility to support us. Wow. And what we are doing is we are walking the walk of interdisciplinary research. So I spend most of my week talking to climate scientists, bioinformatics people, uh, people who did not go to medical school and, and understand nothing about the actual disease process itself, but who I'm convinced are going to be the people who solve the mystery of this disease. How far would you get if you didn't have that philanthropic support? I would have retired. I mean, it's, that's unbelievable to think about. End of story. So uh, people can make a difference. They can impact, even if they're not scientists, they can be part of the team helping the scientists. Absolutely, right? absolutely. And we have a fabulous group of committed parents and families who 
are making a difference. And I honestly can say that when this disease gets solved, it will be because of the support that our team and others have received from philanthropy. At the end of the show, I will make sure that we get a link so if people want to help, because I'm guessing people watching this may have an interest in Kawasaki disease. Mm -hmm. They want to help that they have a place that they can donate money to support the work that you're doing, because um, I think about what you're talking about, and I know the cost of doing some of this, the research, and running Mm -hmm. a laboratory, the space even, is hard to get, that it's it's incredible that you've been able to make these differences. And 30 years of advancing medical knowledge isn't cheap, but it's important. I, I think that the majority of our donors were shocked when they learned that I don't get a salary from UCSD, right? Right. That our research faculty pay their way. And, and that is shocking <laughs> to a lot of people. And it's not true in Europe, and it's not true in many other countries. Um, does that make us better? Maybe it gives us, makes us a little hungrier, but I wouldn't say that it's a lovely system. <laughs> <laughs> well, but we're blessed by families and people who want to give back. Absolutely. So that part of the system is working right now. That part of the system works well. Yes. Well, thank you so much for coming and spending some time with us and educating me and our audience about Kawasaki disease, about letting parents know that they should listen to their own internal voice and, and not ignore that. And Dr. Google... And the first doctor I think I've ever had on who, who suggested Dr. Google, so I'm excited about that. Okay. It's almost an AI, uh, uh, an artificial intelligence in medicine, by the way, it puts it together. So thank you Absolutely. so much for joining us. You're so welcome. I hope everybody's been listening. And uh, it sounds trite, and I say it every time we end the show, but knowledge is power. Your knowledge as a parent about your own child and something being different is incredibly valuable. And you heard one of the world's experts in Kawasaki disease tell you to listen to that voice inside. And then I'm going to make a plea, and that plea is continue to support medical research. Physician scientists, PhDs in laboratories, they're the people that bring us our new discoveries and make all of the things you hear on Health Matters possible. I'm Dr. David Granite. We'll see you again next time right here. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.